0: So we are, uh, we're going to speak today out of John chapter 11. Um, Yeah, next week we're rolling into a, thanks Marcus, rolling into a new series on Ephesians 4, which we're excited about. But uh, I feel like the Lord's really laid on my heart this morning um, to speak into this idea of overcoming discouragement, how to live and to act and to work uh, when we're feeling that heaviness or feeling that sense of discouragement. Uh, We talked about it. Uh, yesterday we had a worship gathering and God did great things there. But that's sort of what's on my heart as we approach this text. So um, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then let's get into God's Word. Hey, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that your Word is truth. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, read it, as we hear it, as we study it, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see things we have not seen before, And catch a glimpse of your precious promises to us that we might be strong and courageous and go into this world um, following you with great boldness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 11, verse 1 through 6 and then on. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Spoiler alert, Lazarus dies. Jesus ends up going... And we find ourselves at the climactic moment in verse 43. After inviting them to move the, the stone from the grave, he says, When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. The title of this message this morning for note takers and people who just like titles is take off the grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes. Is there anyone here who has caught wind of the new cultural phenomenon, which is the gap year? Anybody? Some of you are looking at me strange. As a teacher, probably 10 years ago, I reckon it started, where all of a sudden I'd say to kids, what are you going to do next year? And they're like, oh, I'm going to take a gap year. And you're like, so you've worked so hard studying a few subjects, hitting out a few. Some of you are getting offended already. Look at you, you're like biting your nails because you're going, I'm going to take a gap year. What's he talking about? You know, it's hard work. Year 12's hard work while mum and dad are paying your bills and cooking your food and all of that stuff, making your beds, all that sort of gear. Come on, somebody. So we have this, this move which is, oh, gee, I just need to take 16 months off to do nothing with my life for a while. I'm not I'm Jesse. I'm not trying to offend you. But it's this thing, right? Uh, which has become, yep, yeah, like we take a gap year, we just find ourselves and we do all that stuff. But when I can I use that phrase now, yeah? when I was when I was a boy, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I finished year 12 and it took two days and my dad goes, I got a job for you, mate. <laughs> and up until that point in time, if I'm honest with you, I, like I'd never had a real job. Like the way that I worked, my the job I had was umpiring basketball, right? So I'd finish. School and then I'd go to the basketball court which is a place I love to be and I'd hang out with my friends Which I really enjoyed I'd blow a whistle, which to be honest, I, I didn't mind that control <laughs> as a young person uh, And then I'd get 50 cent bag of lollies, which back then was not like these You didn't get like three lollies in a 50 cent bag of lollies. You know what I'm saying? You got like an Allen's bag of lollies It was great. I loved it. It wasn't work at all for me. And so when I finished high school and Dad said I've got a job for you I was pretty excited because to me, work was just, there was no grind in work. And, uh, and the job was this ongoing um, deal, this arrangement that dad had with one of the elders at the church I grew up in, which is young men, when we finished high school as a part of this church, what would happen was he would invite us to work for his business. And his business was uh, building heaters. So he built gas heaters. And, uh, and so I was super excited because I was like, yes, I'm going to become a man. Like I'm gonna wear steel cap boots and get greasy and <laughs> drill stuff together. Like, you know? Manly stuff. But the reality is, is when I got that job, both my dad and the, the elder who owned that company knew very well that when I mentioned, like I was, when it comes to the word drill, I'm more familiar with that being an, a, a team-building exercise based on skill development. You do drills in in training and this idea of putting a hole in something with a power tool was quite foreign to me and when someone said, get me the driver, I'd think of getting Lewis Hamilton to come over and (laughs) he's a Formula One driver for those of you who don't know that. That's a joke. You know, I had no idea about this stuff so when I rocked up to work, there's not a chance that they're going to go, hey Dave, pick up the power tools and start constructing heaters. knowing I'd get lawsuits for stuff just breaking on people and so when I rocked up there with these expectations of grandeur and manliness and building stuff, the manager who actually didn't want me there because he wasn't the boss, he was just managing and I was an inconvenience and so he put me outside with these racks of just off cuts of random pieces of metal with a tub of hot water and a sponge and he said, wash this. I was like, all right, I can do that for 20 minutes and You know, show them that I'm a good worker and then I'll get to build some stuff. Four hours later, I'm still washing stuff and I've given my I quit speech. I've rehearsed it probably 25 times in my mind. I don't want to be a part of this. This is stupid. What's the point in all of this? I had such high expectations. I had dreams of what I wanted to do, how I thought this job thing would go and all of it was just a disappointment. Disappointment. And I was so discouraged and then my dad rocked up to pick me up with a big smile on his face. He's like, how's your day? I went, oh, terrible. Not what I expected, not what I wanted. And dad said to me something, I'll never forget. He said, yes, son, but it's exactly what you needed. (laughs) Thanks, dad. That's love. And in that moment of saying that, we then jumped in the car, he wound down the window, said to the manager, see you guys, we'll see you tomorrow, because <laughs> he knew what we wanted. And I, was, I thought about this, and I thought about discouragement, and I thought about that story, and I thought, isn't it interesting how so often in life we have uh, ideals of what we think faith should look like, what we think a relationship with Jesus should look like how it should go we know the promises we know the stories we know that God is he is for us and not against us we know that no weapon formed against us shall prosper we know the promises of God and we hold fast to the promises of God and we claim those promises of God and then the reality of life hits in and we are so disappointed sometimes am I preaching to anyone here this morning or are you all just peachy and perfect all the time Because the reality is sometimes life doesn't look how we want it to look. Sometimes we get discouraged. But there's great encouragement and there's great hope in the Scriptures for those who are discouraged. You know, you read the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. The greatest prophet, Jesus says. This man who faithfully and powerfully declared that, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, the saviour of the world, this this man who I've given my life to, and now he's in a prison cell awaiting his death and he's feeling discouraged. He's like, if it, why aren't you saving me? Why aren't you breaking down my prison walls? Because that's what the scripture says you're gonna do. So he has this moment in time and Jesus sends word to him as he sends word to Jesus first. Like, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus sends back, he goes, blessed are those who are not offended in me. He says, it might not be what you want, but I know what you need and I know what the church needs. I know what I'm doing. This is powerful promise. There are gonna be times if John the Baptist himself gets discouraged, there's gonna be times we get discouraged because the truth is that Jesus was not afraid to disappoint his followers. Jesus was not afraid to disappoint his followers. There were times that his followers had all these thoughts of what was going to happen and Jesus unashamedly disappointed them because Jesus will not be imprisoned to our expectations. Just let that sink in for a moment. He will not be imprisoned by our expectations or to our expectations. His ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. And still he beckons us, come follow me. So when we're facing discouragement, what are we we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? And so I want to just pick out five things in this incredible story of how we can confront, how we can take courage when we're discouraged, how we can move forward when we feel like we're moving backwards. And God's got some incredible things in this passage. And so we come to Bethany and we come to this place where, verse one, now a man named Lazarus was sick and he was from Bethany in the village with Mary and his sister Martha. And what we need to know first and foremost is that Mary's the great listener. You remember that story? She sat at Jesus' feet when culturally she should have been serving and she should have been cooking. She should have been doing all that stuff. And she chose to sit at Jesus' feet. And, Jesus, and Martha, is a, she's a great cook. She makes a great... Chicken Tikka Masala. You know, she knows what she's doing. She's, someone looked and was like, oh yeah, I love chicken Tikka Masala. <laughs> this was, You know, that's Martha. She's hospitable. She's a servant. She's beautiful in that space. But in this moment, Jesus is like, Mary, you've done the right thing. Martha, Martha, you busy yourself in so many ways. And Lazarus, we need to understand, is a man of means. Lazarus was buried in a tomb. We're going to find out, which cost money Lazarus his this household didn't just look after Jesus from time to time this is a couple of kilometers away from Jerusalem right this was Jesus home away from home this was his base when he was ministering in Jerusalem he lived with them but it's not just him it's him and his crew you know him and his 12 dudes and probably others as well there's probably people everywhere and these guys are the ones who feed him these guys are the ones who look after him they house him like Lazarus is a is an important person a man of affluence but also a man of influence and it's shown by the fact that when he dies there's Jews everywhere coming to grieve with Mary and Martha that means he was an important person in the eyes of the world and so this is the setting that we come to and Jesus it says the man from Lazarus uh, he was from Bethany the village Mary and his sister Martha and this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Here's the first insight that I want you to see when it comes to this tackling discouragement is that we actually need to gain insight from hindsight. What do I mean by that? I mean, verse two hasn't happened yet. Verse two happens in chapter 12. Why would John do that? why does John reference a story that he hasn't yet referenced in his gospel? Because he wants us to see something. He wants us to know. I'm about to tell a story, guys, about this Mary who who is weeping and mourning and struggling with what's going on. But don't worry, I'm gonna give you some hindsight. This same Mary is gonna be the one who has this extravagant outpouring of worship on Jesus in just a minute. So let's start at that place. As we approach this, start from a place of actual hindsight. Gain insight from hindsight. And this is what we're supposed to do as the church because God has given us this wonderful word of His precious promises. We're supposed to go back to Miriam's song as Israel comes across the Red Sea and we're supposed to sit there and go, how is it that a slave nation for 400 years can be set free from the greatest superpower in the world? Because God is good and God is faithful. And in the midst of their slavery and their discouragement and their despair, he hears the cry of their heart and he knows his purposes and his plans. And although we might be sitting in our place of desert and desolation or whatever it is that you're going through, take heart because if he's done it before, he can do it again. How is it we've just looked at Daniel? How is it that that the Roman Empire falls? I said in that series, remember like, Imagine putting a bet on Jesus and his 12 disciples to outlast and outlive the Roman Empire. You'd be very rich. You would have got great odds. And yet it's true. Rome fell. The kingdom of God is advancing. And when we're in the middle of sitting there, these early church, looking at Rome and Nero and all the stuff that went on, how easy for them to become discouraged and to throw in the towel. But instead they gain insight from hindsight. You know, they see the future while they're in the past. They go, well, hang on, if God's done it before, then I know that he's gonna do it again because the word's written, we have the promise of God. We know the beginning from the end. God has prophesied, we've just looked at it. This is how it's gonna end. Jesus wins, Jesus will overcome. Ultimately, Jesus is Lord of lords, he's King of kings, he's ruler over all things. We have the insight of hindsight. We know the end and therefore hold firm and fast to the promise of God even when discouragement comes. So John, in reading this chapter, says, hey, hey, let me show you the future. I'll show you the future so you can have insight from hindsight. Then we move on and we get to verse three and it says, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Oh, what a great promise. You know? You know? No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he ran immediately to the tomb. Oh, hang on. That's not what it says. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed right where he was for two more days. That's not Christian love, is it? When someone's in trouble and someone's struggling, what do we do? We go to them. But Jesus, def- John defines love as Jesus staying right where he was and not coming to them in their hour of trouble. Here's a, little, here's a little tip for you when you're reading the Word and when you're studying God's Word. One of the best things you can do is you can just fight, like look for that tension Look for the weird bit. As you read, go, hang on, that rubs me the wrong way. Look for the, the difficult stuff. Look for the weird stuff, because right there in that tension is the teach. And as you look at that, and as we look at this right here, he loved them, so he stayed. It doesn't say he loved them, but he was busy and he came as soon as he could. It doesn't say that he loved them, but you know there was a great fishing charter happening and the boys were making their year-long income. It was really important that they stayed where they were and then he came. It doesn't say that he loved them, but he got caught up, you know, because they were trying to kill him and he had to hide and he got in all sorts of bother, but he came when he could. It says he loved them, so he deliberately and intentionally didn't come. What's with that? And the answer is that when we're feeling discouraged and we're crying out to God and we're saying, why are you not coming? Why are you not intervening? Why are you not doing what I want you to do in this moment? We need to get a different definition of love. Our world has defined love as you meeting my every waking desire. Hollywood is to blame. It's all about me. Even though we say it's about you, it's not. It's about me and what I receive and what I get. And the moment that I no longer am having my needs met by you, I give up and I've fallen out of love. But the Bible portrays an extremely different picture of love, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The Bible in here right now, Jesus defines love not as me meeting your every waking need. He says it is for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified through it. Jesus is actually saying that love, true love, the biblical understanding of love is any act that leads to the glorification of the Father and the Son by the Spirit. It's awfully quiet in this place. It confronts our cultural niceties and sensibilities, but it's true. We need to get a different definition of love. We need to understand that love is like, God not intervening in this moment is not because he doesn't love you or doesn't love me. In that moment, when I'm sitting there in a outside in 35 degrees, washing metal for no reason whatsoever, I could say, this is incredibly unloving and I don't like it. But the truth is it was the most loving act that my father and the elder of that church could have done because that's what it meant to be a man. They were more interested in the development of my character than me being able to say to people, being like, yeah, i build heaters. How good's that? You know, I just take drills and make holes and fix stuff, you know. It's just, it's confronting pride. Love confronts pride. Love looks at what we want And it says it's not about what you want, it's about the glory of God and it's about what you actually need in this moment. We've got to get a different definition of love. And as we begin to do that, we realise that Jesus is going to allow this tragedy because he has a deeper motive. Jesus will allow the tragedy because he wants to teach them trust. Jesus is going to allow the grief to occur, he's going to allow all of this to unfold because he is about to bring a revelation of his lordship and his glory and his power over sin and death in a way that no one has ever seen before. He has a greater purpose in the conflict. And I wonder for you, wherever you're at right now, whatever you're going through, whatever discouragement you're feeling, if instead of arguing and complaining and wrestling with that, why don't you say, God, what do you want me to see? Show me something. Number three, verse 7 to 16, says this. After he had said this, he said, let us go back to Judea. So two days have passed. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews would. The Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? What the? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Oh, there's a lot in that. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Watch this. And then the disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's like when I used to get sick and my mum would go, just go and lie on the trampoline, Dave. <laughs> because lying in the sun somehow gives vitamin D. Phil remembers that. We'd lie on the trampoline and just lie there and be like, this is going to magically make me get better from tonsillitis. <laughs> if you sleep, you'll get better. <laughs> it's such an innocent view that the disciples have. And I love that. They're just going, let him sleep. Mate, it'll be all right. It'll come good. You said it's not going to be unto death. So let's just let him rest. And then Jesus goes, guys, (laughs) Lazarus is dead. Imagine that moment like, what? (laughs) You said it's not unto death. He's dead. (laughs) What are you doing? And for your sake, listen to this. I am glad. Jesus says that he is glad that he didn't go and heal Lazarus, but he loved him. So he loved him, so he didn't go and he's glad that he died. I don't know if you're getting this. I'm reading this, I'm like, what are you doing? This isn't Christian. I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Friends, why did John write his gospel? Chapter 20, verse 31, I write these things so that you would believe. His intention is for His glory. His intention is for 2,000 years from now, there'd be a bunch of people sitting in a gym in Verdun, that they would believe that Jesus is who He said He was. That they would believe in the finished work of the cross. That they would believe in the power of God in Christ. They would believe in the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the releasing of His church into the world. He writes this so we would believe this event is happening because Jesus sees the end from the beginning, and He's giving us the insight of His own hindsight. Come on, somebody! <laughs> now watch this. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, "Let us also go that we may die with Him." <laughs> I first read oh, doubting Thomas. He's not just doubting, but he's dreary. <laughs> You know, like just the dirge. Oh, everything's terrible. Oh, he's dead. Oh, we might as well go and die as well then. And I read that and I was like, classic Thomas. But then I realised I was so wrong. Because the verses before and the chapters before show us. Don't ever just read one chapter without reading the chapter before it. Which means you actually have to read the Bible. We love to look at one verse. No, read it in its context because what you realise is that the two previous times Jesus has come to this space, he's, they've tried to murder him. This is a very real risk that if they go, they'll be killed. This is not Thomas being dreary and doubtful. This is Thomas being full of faith. This is Thomas being the one on the forefront. All the other disciples are shaking and nervous and worried about going. And Thomas is like, well, if he says go, let's go. Even if we're going to die doing it. He's full of faith. And I love that. And what I catch from this is submit, but never surrender. What do I mean by that? I mean, submit in obedience to God, but don't surrender to the voices of the world and the pressures of the world and the influence of the world. Don't surrender to that constant call of, oh, he hasn't come through. Why would you believe that? Don't spend time with God's people in this moment. Just isolate yourself. Just go and grieve and mourn all by yourself. Don't surrender to the lies of the world. Submit to the promise and the authority of God in Christ Jesus. Thomas obeys he obeys in faith. How beautiful is that picture of this man who will later doubt. And what does it say about him and the genuine struggle that these disciples went through? He was the brave one who became the doubting one and ultimately fell on his face in worship. Submit but never surrender. Keep going. Watch this, on his arrival, verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, what did she do? She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Oh, Martha, Martha, you're busy doing many things. You're busy doing the culturally right thing. In the moment of trial, who stays? Mary, who goes? Martha learn to meet God at the gate. This is such a profound passage about the life and the witness of Martha because later on it mentions Martha and then it says her sister. John wants us to know Martha is a focus here. There's something that's happened in Martha that has shifted in her spirit. There's something that's changed in the way that Martha operates since the last rebuke when Jesus didn't just do the culturally nice loving thing and he called her out on something and he actually said, mate, you're doing all the right stuff culturally but You've missed the point of why I'm here. And now in this moment, in this moment in time right now, it's Mary who's doing the culturally appropriate thing of staying in her house with all the mourners, being in her own grief, listening to the voices of the mourners saying, woe is you. And it's Martha who gets up by herself, wanders outside the village, meets God Himself at the gate. And she says, Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says one of the best words in the Bible, and it's the word but. Single T, not double. <laughs> if you, are verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, full of theological knowledge and understanding, says, yes. I, uh, she says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day, showing her understanding. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Listen to this response. She said, listen to this. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of of God who has come into the world. That wasn't the question. The question was, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? The question was, he doesn't even, he's not even inferencing here that he's gonna going to raise him from the dead in this moment. It's almost as if he's affirming her initial comment. And so the question is, do you believe that I'm the resurrection of the life? And she doesn't answer that question. She goes beyond that with this bold proclamation of faith. Says, I believe you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Oh, can you imagine that moment? Jesus would have been like, oh yeah, you got it. The one who was busy doing all the stuff has got it. She's had a revelation of who I am. It's so good. This is a powerful word. And then Martha, in proclaiming that, obviously has a chat with Jesus a bit more because Jesus then asks and says, go and get Mary. Why is Mary not here? Mary's the one who sits at my feet. Why is she not here? He's like, go and get her. So it says... um, She goes back, the teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you, verse 29, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village. He's still at the gate, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died full stop. Friends, I've heard this message preached by so many different preachers in so many different contexts and almost every single time they say that this is an act of worship. It's not. It's not. Read the text. It preaches really well to preach it that way. And you, you, know, you can paint great pictures and make it super funny and people engage with it. That's not what's happening here. Mary is coming and she is grieving and she falls at Jesus' feet. But the question, the, the, the statement she makes, is the same statement as Martha without the but. She just says, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. She's like, where were you? Why did you not come? Why did you not meet me in my place of darkness and struggle and discouragement where where, if you'd been here you would have healed him but Jesus has a different agenda Mary knows him as the healer Martha now knows him as the savior and he wants Mary to come from this place of you're the great teacher who can do great things to this revelation of you are the Messiah the son of the living God that's the revelation that he's trying to bring about here. And it says in the text, uh, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews, Mary comes with all of the people who were with her. It's loud and it's wailing and weeping because that's that culture. It's noisy. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. That word deeply moved in the Greek actually means, here's the literal meaning. It means to snort from a horse's nostril. The King James Version translates it, groaned. Other translations actually translate it, he was angry. It's this frustration, this inner aggravation about what this scene that lies before him. The fact that there's this, this, this woman who's just been captivated by who Jesus is, who's proclaiming something, and there's all these people who don't see him for who he is. The promise was this illness will not end in death. That's the promise. And they're going, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. He's like, don't you know who I am yet? I'm about to go to the cross. Don't you know who I am yet? And he's angry. He's angry at death. He's angry at the scene. He's frustrated. And all of that leads to this deep emotive response. And he begins to weep. You want to memorize one Bible verse this year? Memorize Jesus wept. It's only two verses. You can do it. And he weeps. And he grieves and he mourns over this whole situation. He goes, just take me to the tomb. And so they take him to the tomb and there's weeping and there's wailing and there's mourning. And then he says to me, he goes, roll the stone away. And I find that interesting as well because not long from now, he's going to be inside a tomb, dead, and he's going to rise from the dead and he's going to move the stone. I don't know how he did it, but he's just going to do it from the inside. If he wanted to, he could right here, he could walk up to the tomb and just go, tss, couldn't he? He could just go, stone, henceforth move. Thou shalt no longer guard the gap of death. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He goes, you move the stone. Oh, there's something in that, friends, for every single one of us. Because there's dead stuff in our lives. There's stuff that is destroying us and pulling us down. And what do we do? We keep it hidden in the darkness under the, behind, the, behind the stone. And Jesus actually says, before you can start to walk in freedom, you first got to expose what lies behind the stone. You got to expose that death because it's in actually the, the, we were going to use a church word, repentance as we use that, as we actually step out of that and we step and acknowledge that I can't do this myself without you, I am dead. You are the resurrection and the life. I'm just mortal flesh that's gonna fail over and over again, but you are the resurrection and the life. So I'm gonna move that stone away and invite you to speak. And in that moment, we see the last thing, which is just amazing. And where were we? We were chapter 11 and we were sitting right around verse 38. Once more, deeply moved, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He hasn't even prayed yet, and he's thanking him that he's heard him. Insight from hindsight. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. So basically, he's framing a statement under the impression of a prayer, which I think's hilarious. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, Take off the grave clothes. said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Take off the grave clothes. Take off the grave clothes. Friends, Lazarus has been brought from death to life. There is a message here for the church is that we have been brought in Christ from death to life. What we just celebrated with young William is that by faith, the power of the Holy Spirit, the new spirit covenant of grace and faith, He has been brought from death to life. Do you know, when we talk baptism, what we're talking about is this idea of immersion, that what is that what is on me gets in me. It's this idea, this picture of like you take a cloth, a white cloth, and you dip it in a tub of like red dye. And what happens to that cloth as it goes into the red dye that, which is on it, gets in it. And you take that cloth out and forever the cloth is changed. Its nature is now red, not white. Are you with me? It's It has infiltrated the very fabric of that substance. And this is what is happening in this moment. This is a proclamation from Jesus declaring, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm declaring this to the ends of the world for all of eternity, that this is what I do. I take dead things, and I make them living. I take stuff that is broken and destitute and I put my life in it. There is a profound work that goes on when someone comes to faith in Christ. We always talk about, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Do you know, biblically speaking, the New Testament says over and over and over again, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. The word sinner is only used three times in the New Testament in relation to people who believe in Jesus and all three are actually contested theologically. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that if you are in Christ, when you come to Christ and you confess Him as Lord and you say, yes, Lord, take my life, what He does is He takes the seed of death that is in us and He replaces that seed of death with the seed of resurrection life in Jesus' Name. And so what happens is, as what we are trans- transformed from the inside out, we still make mistakes, we still sin because we're in the flesh, but our nature is now changed. The nature's different. Second Corinthians 5, let's go there because that will be helpful for us. Because some of you are feeling nervous right now that I'm talking about saints... 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, everyone say new, creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Ah, oh, it's so good. And it goes on and on. God made Him who had no sin to be sin, verse 21, for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, you have a new nature. He calls you saint. You are a new nature. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That which is in you has been changed. And so what happens is for us, we are now living as Lazarus does. He's a living being wrapped in grave clothes. And this is what we do. We constantly walk around with the life of Christ and the life of the Holy Spirit in us, but we still walk around as though we're dead. We still walk around wrapped in our grave clothes. And the word that Jesus brings is, take off the grave clothes. And He's not just talking to Lazarus and the people around Him. He's talking to the, he's talking to Mary, who's wearing her mourning garments. He's talking to Martha, who's wearing her mourning garments. He's talking to all the other people around the place. Take off the grave clothes. I have come that you might have life and life to the full. I've come to redeem you and set you free from the curse. I have come to make you a new creation. So take off the grave clothes. Stop wearing the garments of guilt that I've already paid for. Stop wearing the shirt of shame that I've already paid for. Come on, somebody. Stop walking as you were and start living as you are in me stop sitting there looking back over your shoulder and start actually going do you know what yes I'm going to stumble yes I'm going to fall but I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and I'm not going to allow the enemy to put the grave clothes back on me and to find my future because he's finished work at the cross is ready to find it I get excited about this stuff You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So when discouragement comes and you're looking at an impossible situation and everything's coming against you to say, whoa, just give up, give up. No, no, you look that situation in the face and you just say, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus and you take that grave clothes and you go, get off of me. You take doubt, you look it in the eye and you speak truth to it doesn't mean doubt won't come but you speak truth to it when you make mistakes when you sin when you which you will because you are in the flesh and you will stumble but that's not who you are anymore So you don't need to wallow and wail in that. You just get back up and keep walking by the grace of God, knowing that in Him you are the righteousness of God. Do you know how awesome it is? Because it takes away pride. Instead of us going, oh, I have to do this. I have to do that. I've got to make myself this. If only I could be a better Christian. What you realise is you can't. We're all Lazaruses. Every single one of us. We're all no one can raise us from the state that we are of death except for Christ Himself and He comes into human history and takes our death and replaces it with life that we could sit there and instead of boasting about gee, I preached well on Sunday or "You know, how good was my coffee on Sunday or whatever it is, I'm serving God hard. No, it's just an overflow of the abundance of what the life is in me because God has done it for me through me it's him it's him it's him and so there is no boasting all there is is just endless hallelujahs why because as he said at the beginning the purpose of things is to glorify God and glorify the son that is why you were born to glorify God created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do Uh. He's so good. Let's stand to our feet. Band, you can come up. We're going to just take a moment to pray. I'm going to give you a minute. Um, It's a, a thing we're doing at this church, which I think is really important because God says uh, I'll be, that be a house, my house will be a house of prayer and one of, one of the things we do is we come on a Sunday and we, we sing and we talk and we coffee and we listen but sometimes we walk away and we haven't actually prayed and we want to change that we want to be a church that is known as a house of prayer so whether this is comfortable or uncomfortable for you that's okay We're going to pray. And it might be that you sit by yourself and pray right now. It might be that you have never, ever prayed in your entire life. And that's okay. You can just sit quietly and just reflect. But if you're a person who loves to pray and you want to stand up and raise hands and you want to speak words of life over someone, then we want to give you a chance to do that. If you want to sit quietly and pray, we want to give you a chance to do that. If you want to gather in a group and pray, we want to give you a chance to do that. But we're going to pray. If you want to come forward and receive prayer from one of the leaders in this church, we want to give you a chance to do that. So we're going to pray just for a minute. Then we're going to sing. Then you can go and get your kids. But let's pray. Over to you, church. Let's give some time to God to reflect. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.